for example, menopause, vaginal atrophy is the perfect example because there are so many ways that you can have connection if that's what you're looking for or pleasure and sensuality and help your arousal without having painful intercourse at that time. And there are plenty of ways that you can also help that. But if you are continuing to have sex, which is uncomfortable for you and painful for you, the thing that it's going to do is create negative feelings towards the partner you're having sex with, but also is going to have a negative effect on desire because you're not going to want to be having something which is painful. You're not going to be motivated to have something which is painful. Kate Moyle is an accredited psychosexual and relationship therapist and a certified psychosexologist. She is determined to make sure that we are having fulfilling sex in our relationships throughout our lives. This is the Lizelle Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping us all have a better second half. I'm Lizelle, and as you probably know by now, I am on a real mission to find ways for all of us to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. Well, our bodies, our brains, our hormones and our expectations change as we age. And we talk a lot about that on this show. But today I want us to think about how those changes might affect our relationships and the sex that we're having. Well, I have to confess, this is an especially timely one for me personally, as I navigate menopause, midlife, and well, yeah, getting back out on the dating scene again after my divorce and a few years of, well, frankly, relationship wilderness. And, you know, navigating our way through all of this can be pretty scary. It's a scary and intimidating time, no matter what our personal situation. So I am hoping to pick up some good guidance for myself here as well as for you too. Well, as a psychosexual and relationship therapist, Kate works with people to recognise their own personal understanding of their sexuality and their sexual health. You might have watched her on the BBC series Sex on the Couch, listened to her podcast The Sexual Wellness Sessions or read her new book The Science of Sex. Absolutely brilliant. So get ready for some sex re-education. Kate's here to help us explore our preferences, expand our horizons and maximise our pleasure. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Well, Kate, a very warm welcome. And as well as being a therapist, a term that we probably generally understand, you're also a psychosexologist. So what does that mean? 
A psychosexologist is really someone who works with sex and relationships in a professional context, studies sex and relationships, and is an expert in that space. And it was a training that I went and did, which was with psychologists and doctors alongside each other doing the same training Mm -hmm. and then sitting separate exams. So it's that real bringing the medical, biological, hormonal, physiological side of it you know, combining it with the psychology and the social elements, which we know is such a big part of our sex lives. Wow, fascinating to to bring those two together. And in fact, later on, I do want to go on and talk about our changing bodies as we age. But first, and this is obviously going to be a conversation about sex and about relationships, and your job is literally to talk to people about those things. Why then is being able to communicate, to physically talk about sex just so important? I think it's the bedrock of everything to do with our sex lives really at the heart of good sex good relationships is communication and we always kind of laugh that it's it's the answer that everyone slightly rolls their eyeballs the answer Mm -hmm. that everyone doesn't want to hear like I want to know what I can do not that I have to talk about it talking about it is the thing we'd all rather avoid yeah most people would rather kind of go through their whole lives without having to ever talk about sex than actually Mm. sit down and have it but Quite simply, we can't know what's going on in our partner's heads. We can't express our desires. We can't express our preferences without these, without communication, without Mm. being able to talk about it. We can't say, actually, this isn't working for me. Or, you know, as you've alluded to already, that sex has changed. Yeah. And we live in a a culture and a society where we have this view of sex, strangely, even though everything else in our life changes, as this unchanging beast and part of our lives. And talking about it is how we navigate everything that we come up against. Mm. I think there's almost a kind of an unspoken narrative that if we have to voice something to do with sex, you know, ask for something, then we must be doing something wrong. But it, it actually sounds like quite the opposite. Talking about sex is the sign of a healthy relationship. You've hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. <laughs> I think it's, we all fear and we, we see this yeah. you know, in medical contexts with people delaying appointments for concerns they have around, whether it's genitals or um, the pelvic parts of their body, whether it's to do with sex, painful sex, um, smear tests, whether it's anything to do with the sexual parts of our body, we see a typical delay in seeking help for anyway. So it's not just us talking to partners or us dating or exploring sex with new partners or exploring sex for ourselves and solo the solo side of it. It's also having a you know potentially health risking negative impact on our health as well. Mm. And we we you know we see that there's gynecological cancers and that people ignore symptoms or feel so embarrassed about symptoms that they don't go and seek the medical advice that we yeah. would like them to. I can see that it clearly is absolutely fundamental, really, when you think about it. And I guess those conversations are going to become even more important as we age. You know, our bodies are changing, our needs might change, perhaps our desires change. What are some of the most common concerns that people come to you with in midlife? One of the biggest things, not just in midlife, but across the board, is a mismatch in desire for couples. So often what happens is couples say one of us typically wants a lot more sex than the other one and that creates a problem. It creates a problem dynamic and within that there are layers which are one partner feels they're always the one starting it and you know we hear phrases like this all the time, if I don't it will never happen. Right. 
And that's a really, really common sentence that people say. And so this this mismatch in desire or discrepancy in desire is really, really common. But what one of the biggest things that we, one of the biggest kind of myths, I suppose, around it, which perpetuates it is that it is much more unlikely for couples to be perfectly sexually aligned than Mm -hmm. it is for them to be perfectly sexually aligned. So it's working out how to navigate that. Mm. And again, that's where the communication bit comes in because we all make lots of assumptions about what it must mean about us or our relationship or our sex life to have this discrepancy. Mm. And I guess also, you know, when you start a new relationship, often, you know, the sex is amazing, hopefully, and it's mutually wanted as a kind of almost an introduction to the relationship, if you like, to get to know each other. And there is that sort of initial chemistry but then that might wane, as you say, maybe for one person more than the other, but shouldn't necessarily be seen as a negative. But I guess that is when it becomes hard to talk about because it's kind of you feel that something is being lost rather mm. than, you know, navigating change is always difficult, isn't it? No matter what kind of change. And I guess change in sexual needs. Is that something that we should be expecting? You know, should we expect that initial euphoria to actually wear off and then have an open conversation about actually where is it going? Has it gone? Can it come back? Definitely. I think that sex changing is the most natural thing for us to expect. And the lack of, I think, solid education and normalized conversation and just good, solid talking about sex is one of the things that doesn't ever set us up to see sex changing or hear about sex changing for other people. So then we automatically assume it's just us. Yeah. And we see that sex is in context. So everything that's going on in our lives is going to affect sex because it's how we are thinking, how we're feeling, if we're under stress, if we have young children, if we're trying to conceive, if we're going through menopause, if we're having a health scare, if we've got a bereavement in our family, if we are navigating our children leaving home, if we're going through a breakup, if we're going through a, a new relationship it, it doesn't stop everything else around us doesn't stop and sex sits in context of that and because we describe it as something which is biopsychosocial we always understand it as they're having a biological influences psychological influences and social influences which are all playing a part in where we're at and that's why as psychosexual therapists we don't extrapolate one from the other we look at how all of those things are affecting each other. Mm. I think that's really interesting. You know, you talk about sex as being a biopsychosocial experience. And, you know, we're often told that sex is a physical experience. So what's all that about then? As I said, you know, we'll get onto the biology in a bit, but how are we influenced here by our psychology and also by society? How are we, how are we not influenced by yeah. our, our psychology and our um, society, I think are probably the bigger questions. But it's more that I think a lot of it is bedded in how we educate about sex, which has historically been pretty much reproduction education. So this is, and, you know, to, to kind of line up with that is that's very heteronormative. So it's very much, this is about how to get pregnant or not get pregnant, how to protect against sexually transmitted infections. This goes here. And that's really along with some basic biology, a lot of the time about things like periods, what most of our sex education is compromised of, and that would probably be a relatively good one. And 
what that doesn't encompass is the motivations for having sex, how our desire works, that sex might be painful, what sex actually means, that it can happen in this huge variety mm. of ways, that it isn't just this one act, you know, the, the act of intercourse is one part of sex, but it isn't the exclusive definition yeah. of yeah. sex. Well, do you think then, if we stick with that cultural element there for a moment, do you think that people are often having a certain type of sex, maybe basic sex, because they feel they should, because there are certain societal expectations of, you know, what sex is? Absolutely. It's one of the things I talk about all the time in my work, because for example, if we believe that intercourse is sex and that's the kind of in the box definition and nothing else counts, yeah. then how are people with certain disabilities or body differences having sex when they report having really satisfying, enjoyable <laughs> sexual relationships with their partners without mm. that one part of sex? How are people who are navigating uh, the postnatal part of their relationship, right. having sex if they are not currently having intercourse, but are really intimate in other ways. And when people are going through conditions like prostate cancer, if they're not currently able to have intercourse, but are able to have successful, by their terms, intimate, connecting, satisfying experiences. And again, you know, with menopause, when we see that one of the common symptoms is vaginal atrophy, which can cause painful sex, there's no reason for pleasure fun, connection, intimacy to not be a part of your life because one thing might not be currently available to you in the way that it used to be. Yeah. So that then is very freeing, I guess, in itself to, to broaden our definition of what sex is. Absolutely. You know, sex, we can we can make it whatever we really want it to be for us. And that's why I always talk about not working out what we think normal is, but <laughs> finding are normal. Our needs and our desires do change over time for whatever reason. And in a long-term relationship, you know, I've had experience of this, it can be very hard to voice those things. You know, you might worry that it's, you know, you're just too far down the line. You don't want to upset your partner. You don't want to perhaps make them feel you've been hiding your preferences for this whole time. How can we start gently having that conversation? So have you got any hints here as to kind of the opening gambit? Mm, I think it's a really good point that you've just made there. Because a lot of, I actually think that often people in long-term relationships might be some of the people who find it most difficult to talk about because it's something they've not ever talked about. Definitely. And introducing that change can feel really, really scary. And obviously we worry about rocking the boat or disrupting Mm -hmm. the status quo. I think introducing it to your partner in advance is a really useful way of doing it. So saying... You know, I'd really really like us to sit and talk about sex sometime when you feel ready. You know, I've been thinking about it a bit. And rather than just springing it on them, often what happens is when we kind of sit our partners down and we say, I need to talk to you about sex now. (laughs) We've we've kind of run through it in our heads. We've kind of planned it. We're a step ahead. And so giving them a heads up, I think, can be really helpful. Sometimes what I say to people is if you've read an article or listened to a TED Talk or a podcast episode... And you want to say to your partner, can I share this with you? I'd Mm -hmm. really like us to talk about this. That can be what I describe as kind of like an L-shaped introduction. So it's kind of a via something else. (laughs) Excellent. Love that. (laughs) But it it often often helps because it takes the pressure off us to feel like we're starting it. And you can say, what did you think about that? Yeah. And we're lucky now we live in a time when there are some amazing sexual wellness resources and books and podcasts and products that are available helping people get Mm. started but I think that often 
we fear what the conversation might open up but often mm-hmm. we need the conversation because what we're currently doing isn't working yeah well hopefully you know this podcast can be part of that change and you know for people who are regular listeners who might think hey you'll never guess what Lizelle was talking about this week you know why don't you have a listen and I guess moving on from that you know why might it be helpful for us to be able to articulate to our partners why we want to have sex rather than actually kind of focusing on the physical acts themselves that why is quite important isn't it Well, I mean, it's the biggest differentiator for all of our sexual experiences. Why we're doing something, the motivation for doing something. The physical act is, you know, varied in lots of ways, but the why, the headspace we're in, the motivation. One of my favorite pieces of research um, was a piece of, uh, was done in 2007 and it's called Why Humans Have Sex. Mm. And it identified 237 motivating reasons for why people (laughs) said they were having sex, which they then categorized but it's I think the assumption often is I have to want to have sex in this moment and to act on that rather than I want to feel physically close to my partner rather that or that an orgasm before I go to sleep really helps me to to nod off that or I really feel like I want to be connected to my body or I'm just really in the mood and I have a lazy morning you know whatever it is yeah we can we don't see again that variety of motivations i think reflected and understanding that also ties into how we think about desire which you you mentioned earlier you know desire changing across relationships mm. that at the start we're very focused on each other we touch a lot more we flirt a lot more we're giving each other a lot of attention a lot of eye contact we yep. are getting to know each other often in a very physical way And that might change once we feel more emotionally connected Mm -hmm. and once we stop investing in what we describe as sexual currency so much, which is everything that you do with a partner that isn't sex, but kind of contributes to the sexuality of your relationship, the sexual well-being of your relationship. So kissing, touching, playing, laughing, flirting, and life takes over. And so we see a kind of changing or a rebalancing of those things particularly Mm -hmm. in long-term relationships but it's not necessarily a problem if we're aware of it and we can then intentionally work at it so is that perhaps the why as to why if we're in a new relationship we might have a lot of sex because we're using that as a way to kind of reaffirm the fact that this person wants to be with us, values us, you know, is attracted to us, wants to stay with us. We trust them. You know, we give of ourselves because we're letting them into our space. And of course, once you've done that, if you're in a long-term relationship, you know, particularly if you get married and you make that commitment, the need to do that, to demonstrate that, it just disappears, doesn't it? Because you've already got, you know, you've already got the piece of paper or you've already got the, you know, the gold ring on your finger. So that's kind of proved that. You know, how then do we navigate that change in desire? Because as we just said, you know, that level of desire will be mismatched and presumably that dynamic is going to change over time. You know, I guess just recognising that, I guess, in in itself is helpful, isn't it? Yeah, I think recognising it is really helpful. And we see that there are various kind of changes that that sex goes through. That being one, that sex, as you said, one one element of it is that we really we're investing hard at the start of relationships also we're exploring you know mm-hmm. we're getting to know someone it's all new it's exciting it's novel the way that our our brains work is we love novelty and we habituate right. we get used to things and sex 
is like anything else in life. We get used to it. We get used to a person. We can get stuck in routines. We might kind of start to, and again, this is where the communication bit comes in. Because if we don't know how to communicate about sex, we might get into a rhythm or a routine way of having sex. And then we don't know how to change it. Mm. And changing, even if it's a little thing, like the lights on or the lights off, or the position or the location in the house or the time of day those things do contribute to novelty right but if we don't know how to say it yeah and we've always been doing it the same way and we think what would my partner do if I suddenly suggested that we (laughs) yeah four o'clock in the afternoon you know or Mm. in, in in the kitchen or whatever you know that would probably shock quite a few partners maybe and and be a risk, you know, you be be challenging, I guess. And, you know, you've always maybe got that fear of rejection or somebody saying, yeah. oh, come on, don't be stupid. You know. Absolutely. And when it's the person that we're intimately connected with and everything else is intertwined in our lives, we tend to take less risks. It's yeah. easier to take risks with people we're not that emotionally attached to. Or yeah. We don't you sure. know, have invested shared interests. Yes, if it goes horribly wrong, it doesn't matter quite so much. You can just Mm. get over it or laugh it off. I mean, we've talked about metacognition on this show before, you know, the idea that you have thoughts about your thoughts. Mm. How are we adding our own sense of shame, perhaps, or anxiety on top of the unease that a lot of us already feel about sex in general when we feel that our sexual desires don't fit the prescribed norm? I think shame is one of the most commonly attached feelings to sex. And I think that it's also pretty crazy that we're saying that in 2023 when we have these, you know, we have very sexualized representations of sex and TV shows and films and, and lots yes. of adverts, for example. But yet the everyday messiness and, you know, someone gets cramped, someone falls off the bed, the doorbell goes, the baby cries, you know, your yeah. teenager walks in the door and says, mom, you know, yeah. th- those bits are never, we never kind of, I don't think we celebrate them mm-hmm. enough. We just get so stuck, I think, with these versions of sex, which are very reduced. And I think it goes back to the point of kind of limiting our definitions of sex to mm-hmm. intercourse as well, is we assume that anything outside of the box means that we are the one that's not normal because we've only seen and heard about one way or type of sex or way of having sex. And therefore, Mm -hmm. if we're not subscribing to that, then the problem must be us. And nobody's talking about it. So therefore, we shouldn't ask. So we're only left to deal with our own assumptions. And these versions of sex have been kind of very kept. And, you know, there's, there's obviously a huge element of that sex historically was something only for heterosexual people and we still see that in some countries around the world that it's illegal Mm, um, to not have heterosexual sex or be in a same-sex relationship yeah we see that religion has played a very big part historically and that you know sex within marriage has always been something that has been the model which everyone should be abiding to you know and the Mm. laws have been based around that so Mm -hmm. It's not just where we're at now. It's something that's been a huge part of our history as well. Mm. Sounds like you're saying that actually, bottom line is we need to lighten up a bit and kind of relax a bit more about it. I think that we can just, we can make sex what we want it to be. And I think that's why these ideas about normal can be quite pervasive. And what they often do is create shame unnecessarily. Yes. When for two people who might be having sex and they have sex once a month and that feels great for them. They enjoy what they're doing. They've adapted it a bit based on what's going on for them in their lives. They might be absolutely fine 
with that until they start comparing it to what someone else says they're doing, which is mm. that they're having sex once every two weeks and suddenly they're, they're not measuring up. Mm-hmm. And oh, the comparison. representations, exactly. <laughs> the and then the representations we see of sex. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the toxicity of comparison is huge. And then the representations we see of sex are often these glamorized, non-representative models of sex. And so that kind of compounds these ideas. Mm. And I think the metacognition bit is huge. We overthink sex so much. It's one of the biggest, biggest things that we talk about in psychosexual therapy is people saying, I just can't stay in it. I can't stay in the moment. I'm so distracted. I don't feel like I'm in the moment when I'm having sex. How do, you know, how do I change that? What's going on? Why is that? What does that mean? And then we think ourselves down a, down a spiral. Mm. Well, something that we talk quite a lot about in conversations here is mental health and boundaries. So I'm just wondering here how important they are in the context of sex. And should we begin to think about what our boundaries might be? Yeah, boundaries are crucial to sex because sex is about us putting ourselves in a vulnerable situation and we have to feel comfortable with that. It's about consent. It's about our bodies, our experience, and it's our responsibility to be firm in our boundaries and not to step over them because also when we do, we know that it doesn't feel good and we're then associating sex with something that doesn't feel good. But also we have to communicate them clearly to our partners because often people might feel that they've gone over their boundaries in sex, but their partner didn't know that the boundary was there or it might not have been clearly communicated. And so that's why it's really important to, to be explicit with them. But we see that sex can encompass so many things if we're talking about someone who's in a relationship trust for example yes and that sex and power can be quite combined Mm -hmm. and so sex can be withheld or can be um someone can feel like they're having sex when they don't want to it might be painful Mm -hmm. physically painful and they're like oh I think I should have sex otherwise my partner's gonna think this when there's all these other things that they could do which won't necessarily Mm be painful you know for example menopause vaginal atrophy is the perfect example yeah because there are so many ways that you can have connection if that's what you're looking for or pleasure and sensuality and help your arousal without having painful intercourse at that time yes and there are plenty of ways that you can also help that but Mm -hmm. if you are continuing to have sex which is uncomfortable for you and painful for you actually the thing that it's going to do is create negative feelings towards the partner you're having sex with but also is going to have a negative effect on desire because you're not going to want to be having something which is painful you're not going to be motivated to have something which is painful and that doesn't feel good for you well we'll come back and talk about kind of the physicality of it and hopefully you know help for overcoming some of that pain that, that might be occurring but bottom line here I think what you're saying or what I'm getting from this is it's really important to understand and communicate what turns us off as much as what turns us on mm, absolutely and for us to know ourselves because I think so much of the time we might need to adapt our sex lives to what's going on for us in our context that going back to that point of sex always being context and so sometimes we might need to work out for ourselves first 
So we feel comfortable because when we feel comfortable, we can then feel more confident in expressing that to another, whether it's a partner who we've been through with for years or someone who we're just starting to have a sexual relationship with. Mm. Okay, well, hold that thought, Kate, because I want to come back in a moment and talk about the role our brains and our hormones play in all of this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, by the time we reach midlife, we will likely have been having sex, been in relationships, whether that's the same partner or not, for decades. So talk to me about the importance of novelty in keeping our brains engaged with all this over time. I love talking about this because I think often when people <laughs> think of novelty, what they think is that they're going to have to go out and buy all these weird and wonderful outfits. And yeah, nurses' uniform like a... <laughs> springs to mind. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah, be a completely different person, buy 20 mm-hmm. different sex toys. Mm. And I often talk about sex, novelty in sex being about every time you have sex, changing one thing. And that okay. one thing can be lights on, lights off, starting with your clothes on, starting with your clothes off, um, a different room of the house, changing your pillows to the other end of the bed, putting the bedding on the wow. floor. Um, okay having sex in the shower or decide changing position 
introducing a sex toy using lubricant or not or trying you know deciding to not have intercourse for that time you know there's so many ways Mm -hmm. that we can do it but changing one little thing thinking about them always as tweaks I suppose rather than these big changes because suddenly it all feels much more accessible and much more available to you and the idea of you know we hear these phrases novelty spicing it up um, things like that can be so intimidating to people sometimes. Yes. They just think, do you know what? I just don't even want to go there. I don't want to no. think about that. I love that. I love the idea of putting pillows at the other end of the bed. <laughs> you know, which is something so simple, but you have changed and you've made a change and you've taken that step that actually says, hey, you know, I still fancy you and let's have sex, but let's just make it that little bit different. And then I guess you can, you know, be bolder if that's the right word to actually you know, have the confidence to to try something new. And I mean, we touched before on the fact that arousal is kind of context dependent, but presumably it's also influenced by key sex hormones. So can we chat about the role that things like estrogen, progesterone and testosterone, all the hormones that we talk a lot about on this show, what are the roles there that they play in desire? Yeah, so when we talk about arousal and desire, we're actually talking about interrelated but different processes. So arousal being the body's physical process of preparing for sex. And so that physical kind of turning on and desire being the motivation and the want for a sexual experience. And so often what we see is that throughout the menstrual cycle, particularly that although there's no fixed research on it, a lot of people report feeling that they might be more interested in sex or more physically turned on or more responsive during ovulation and evolutionary anthropologists and people who are studying that side of things would say that that probably makes sense because it's the point of highest chance of conception. So that's presumably being regulated by progesterone, which is is kind of controlling that ovulation period, you know, when that's peaking and we become more fertile. Is is that when we're, we're, we're going to be feeling more in the mood? Yeah. So in that kind of ovulation window, what we're kind of seeing is that people often report feeling, saying they're feeling hornier, but then it's not fixed because for some people they might be feeling awful and feeling exhausted and noticing that their emotions are all over the place. And so again, we see that it's that context thing. But what we do notice is that there is a general trend for particularly um, perimenopause and menopause um, people reporting a lower interest in sex. Now, what we also can't untangle that from is commonly reported 34 symptoms of things that are going on that might not make us feel good about ourselves mm-hmm. or good about our bodies. You know, we talk about kind of foggy brain, difficulty sleeping, hot flashes, so much stuff which is not going to make us feel good. Mm. And so this is again back to that biopsychosocial part of all of this stuff interrelating. Mm. So I guess then HRT for women particularly is going to make a potentially a massive difference because you're regulating those hormones and replacing the ones that might be contributing to desire that you could be losing. Mm. And I think a lot of people do report that. And there's also, we see a kind of steady drop of testosterone across the lifetime. And we see that men also have highest testosterone levels first thing in the mornings, which is why testosterone tests by doctors will always be done first thing. Really? And so that often anyone who's um, had a testosterone check, the doctor will say, come kind of in that in that first window Interesting. In, of time in the morning. And so we see that hormones, also how we feel, you know, psychologically are feeling. A lot of people feel anxious at certain times of their menstrual cycle or have mm-hmm. increased anxiety going through menopause, perimenopause and menopause. And so those things, again, are going to 
negatively probably contribute to desire. Yeah. Does that mean then that men are more likely to want sex in the morning than at night? I think if we break it down to just hormones, then it might mean that there's a sense of kind of readiness at that point in the morning. And often we see that men are also waking up with erections. And that's because we have nocturnal erections, which are throughout the night during REM sleep. And typically Mm -hmm. you're in a period of REM sleep just before you wake up, which is often why people wake up with morning erections. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're kind of carrying on through throughout the night, which will be why if someone's experiencing erectile dysfunction, that one of the questions that we might ask is, are you continuing to wake up with erections or have you noticed any changes to your nocturnal erections or your morning erections? Because there's no conscious thought going into those, no psychology going into them. It's thought that it's about blood flow going out to the tissue to oxygenate it during REM sleep. So is that a health indicator then? Should guys be kind of aware and watching out for that? You know, is it very normal? Should every guy be waking up with an erection? Not every guy should be waking up with an erection, but if there is a sudden change that you notice, absolutely, it's a health indicator. That's because some of the blood vessels in the penis are some of the smallest in the body. So if we've got problems with blood flow somewhere in the body, or they can be an indicator of something going on with the heart or diabetes, then it's absolutely worth getting it checked out. And Mm -hmm. there are lots of kind of very simple examinations that can be done to test that. But it's about the sudden change, because as we age, those morning erections and nocturnal erections will become less frequent and less strong. And that's a normal part of the process, the aging process. So then physically, how is arousal, which we're talking about here, controlled by the autonomic nervous system? And and does that mean for sex that when we're stressed or distracted, say in fight or flight mode, you know, what impact does that have on sex? Well, it has a huge effect on sex. And that's why we see that people when they're highly stressed, you know, often it correlates with sexual dysfunction. And it might not be that that person has consciously put those two things together Mm -hmm. but we can understand that there's absolutely absolutely a role going on and um, a perfect example can be that men and people with penises can experience performance anxiety which can actually stop them getting erections or they can lose erections because they're stressed Mm -hmm. because the stress response has kicked in Um, So arousal is a a kind of automatic process, which is why people can suddenly report feeling really turned on when they're not necessarily like thinking about sex. And it's because the brain responds to things which are sexually relevant. And the difference between sexually relevant and kind of a turn on for us is that personal bit. So if our brain responds to something which is sexually relevant, so it could be, for example, um, a sex scene on TV or a kissing scene on TV, and it might not turn us on personally, but we might notice that that kind of start of something or notice that physical response. Or mm. often people say in something like a doctor's appointment or a physio appointment, they're like, God, I felt really embarrassed. I suddenly thought I felt a bit turned on, but it's actually that <laughs> brain's reaction right. to the physical touch physical touch somewhere on the body it's not because they actually fancy or feel turned on by the medical practitioner and that's because that that net gets cast kind of wide and then what happens is we what is personally eternal or exciting to us is based on our preferences our desires Mm -hmm. you know an element of 
just who we are mm. as an individual, genetics, you know, that is still, there's no exact science to what mm. turns people on or why people have particular preferences or desires, but also a lot of it is learned. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking here about what's going on in the brain at that time. And I'm wondering how we can apply what we know of mindfulness, for example, something that we might make a point of in other parts of our lives. How can we turn that to our sex lives when thinking about that? Can can that play a role? Mm, yes. And Dr. Laurie Brotto, who is a fantastic researcher in this area, has done research where she found that mindfulness not only improved people's subjective personal experience of feeling turned on and feeling aroused, but actually when they measured the physical arousal, that, for example, the physical arousal in increased blood flow to the vagina was increased using these mindfulness techniques and a mindfulness program. Really? And there's an element of here which is about us focusing our attention on the thing which is encouraging our arousal. So, in, and we're focusing on our pleasure and that's the thing that makes us feel good. And so the more we're giving our attention, I often describe it a bit like turning up the volume on what we are experiencing. Mm. So where we offer our attention, particularly when it comes to sex, because distraction is a real interrupter of both desire and arousal yeah it's really really helpful because our mind and our particular anxious thoughts are constantly taking us out and away from our physical sensations that is just fascinating and and let's think about our physical sensations then our physical bodies you know menopause of course is huge for sex and for our relationships what physical changes then should we be aware of and you know do you have any practical solutions so the, the main one that we see reported particularly focused around sex is vaginal atrophy. So that drying and thinning of the vaginal walls, which is about the decrease in estrogen. And that can mean that sex feels more painful. Uh, penetration might feel more difficult. It might mm -hmm. feel that there's more in increased friction. And so a really good thing that we can do is introduce a good high quality lubricant to that. And that is... My recommendation is to stay away from anything kind of flavored or scented, anything with glycerin, because we don't want you to risk any infections at this point either. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, Yes Organics are a brilliant brand that I always recommend, um, yes, particularly for yeah. perimenopause and the menopause of women. I mean, they're brilliant across the board. Yeah. But for me, I don't really understand why that's something that isn't just a kind of given as a part of this a conversation norm. because it's yeah. such an easy cost-effective way yes. of helping sex to be more comfortable yeah. I mean if we'd sprained our elbow we would have no problem wearing you know a, a bandage around it to, yes. to help us to or, or rubbing a bruise cream on or something yeah. yeah yeah exactly and it, again it's it's back to that stigma bit but we also see the physical symptoms like disturbed sleep hot flashes, things that, so often, um, particularly if people have had induced menopause or medical menopause as well, those symptoms can happen very quickly and be very yes. intense. And the idea of a partner physically coming near you in bed when you are having a hot flash or you're really struggling to get sleep, there can be an almost like an aversion, which is, I just need my space. I can't, mm -hmm. That that's going to make me feel so intense or feel so hot or I can't do that right now. And that can, again, 
be a difficult thing to communicate. So I'm not mm. rejecting you, but I yeah. I physically can't do this at the moment. Well, I really hope that if anybody's listening to that and resonates with that, that they are definitely seeking out some hormone replacement therapy because, I mean, it is just such an extraordinary gift uh, that we have. And of course, when we look at that within that, you've got vaginal estrogen, which is so safe. You know, I mean, it mm. can be prescribed for, you know, estrogen positive breast cancer. I mean, it is so localized that, you know, whether it's, you know, a pestery or a cream or whatever, and it just works within the vaginal wall. So in terms of if you're purely talking about sexual penetration, that is such a massive game changer for women. And, you know, I just wish that more midlife women, I guess, were, were aware of it and weren't disadvantaged by it. You know, the number of girlfriends I've had who've kind of suddenly discovered it, who've gone, oh, my goodness, this has changed my life. Why, why did I not know about this before? Mm, there's also a brilliant brand called Nadea who have a specifically targeted range for perimenopause or menopausal women. And the the results that or the, the reports of people using them are really are really positive. And I think again, it's about finding what works for you. Sex toys yes. are a really great thing for introducing at this period as well, because some women report reduced sensation sometimes or reduced ability reduced strength of orgasm or reduced that it takes longer for them to get to orgasm we also see that those symptoms are reported by people taking ssri medications so selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors for depression um so increasing sensation physical sensation using whether it's different types of touch or as i said like a lubricant or introducing sex toys and so i work with the sex toy brand Lilo, who make mm. really high quality, yep. like beautiful, you know, high medical grade silicon yep. um, products. Because again, what your sex toys are made from is really yes. important. You want no, silicon I mean, I'm, because I'm, it's non-porous. Yeah, I, I'm aware of Layla. I was going to say I've come across them, but that kind of wouldn't sound right in this conversation. So <laughs> <laughs> I, moving on, I think as well, you know, we tend to talk about the pelvic floor in relation, mm. you know, to either pregnancy and postnatal period of our of our lives and, and more around bladder and bowel health in later life. But, you know, what do we need to know about the pelvic floor when it comes to sex for women? It's a really integral part of sex. And it's as important to be able to relax your pelvic floor as it is to tense it Mm. because the vaginal canal runs through the middle of the pelvic floor and so when when we're talking about the vagina we're talking about basically the internal elastic canal so from the cervix the neck of the womb down to um, the entrance of the vagina where it meets the vulva and the muscles being relaxed is a part of what makes penetration comfortable And if we're tensing a lot, it can make penetration difficult, but also then painful. And so keeping your pelvic, you know, keeping the pelvic floor toned, but also knowing how to relax is an important part of it. And again, this is where we can see things that anxieties around leaking can Mm -hmm. play a part because we might be nervous around sex because we're nervous about leaking. And it's something that we've seen happen at different stages of our lives and or we we feel very like that would be really embarrassing so we'd rather just ignore the whole scenario completely yes and also that can make us tense up more or we might find that we're tensing our pelvic floor more and then we find it harder to relax it when we want to and 
I'm a big advocate for women's health physio and pelvic health physio. Oh my gosh, a women's health physio can be life-changing. They are Mm. so, so brilliant. Very specific with their training and, you know, in my experience, incredibly knowledgeable and empathetic and and gentle and and helpful. You know, yeah, I remember seeing one, you know, after I had my children and it was, you know, just so, so useful and Mm. not at all embarrassing. I mean, they deal with this every single day, every hour of the day, probably. And I think, of course, you know, for some people getting older, we might be contending with physical disabilities, you know, illnesses we've never had to think about before. Everyone obviously is going to have their own unique of circumstances but are there any foundational points that you start with for clients who perhaps come to you with these kind of concerns I think across the board it's working out really how what is your definition of sex you know how do you define sex and how do you feel about that definition that's that's one part of it and really that's about how what shape does sex take in your life and then the next thing is is this something that's satisfying for you and enjoyable for you? And if it isn't, what hurdles do we think there are to it being? So whether they're physical hurdles, so struggling with hormonal changes or certain medications or injury or um, cancer treatments, for example, can really, really affect sex lives. But um, often, you know, I work with people who have had injuries. And so it's really about adapting And adapting is a big word I use here because it's something that we really should be doing with our sex lives throughout our lives anyway, but something that some people are forced to do or made to do as a result of something happening in their lives. And the other part I think is about that physical adaptation, but also then how we think and feel about it. And then if we have a partner how we include them in that and explain that to them. And we can tackle it as something happening between us together. Mm -hmm. There's these different layers to it. I love that. I think that sounds so positive and so helpful for for people in that situation. And then finally, Kate, just to make this really feel like a school sex education class, we should probably touch on sexually transmitted infections, STIs. You know, pregnancy for most of us listening is likely no longer a concern in mid and later life. But what do we need to know about safe sex as midlifers and beyond? Do we need to be having safe sex? Yes, we need to okay. be safe. everyone needs to be having safe sex and uh, you know it's probably slightly stating the obvious but people do get pregnant in perimenopause mm-hmm. um, it's not unheard of and often the pregnancy symptoms and perimenopause symptoms can be confused tell because... me about it it happened to me <laughs> um, yeah so we so that being one one important part of it but really the most reliable contraceptives that we can be using particularly if we've got new partners are barrier methods so condoms and getting an STI check at any age is not going to be considered anything other than positive and that you're looking after this part of your health right and is that um, for both partners yes um because also partners might have um been having sex with someone for years or have had you know, had an infection which has been invisible. You know, a lot of these infections are asymptomatic. And so if particularly if you're having new partners, it's a good thing to be regularly tested. But safe sex really matters at any age. Yeah. And how do we go about getting an STI test? Is it is it quite straightforward? Do we go to our GP? Do we need to find a special clinic? Uh, there are sexual health clinics. So um, as a embedded part of the NHS and there are also private sexual health clinics and there are also home testing kits that you can order 
really? that you can have sent in. Yeah. Mm, and cool. so there are lo- there are loads of ways that okay. it's possible. But there's also the peace of mind bit. If it's something that's worrying you, no one is going to judge you. If anything, you're being really responsible about this part of your health. Brilliant. Kate, absolutely fascinating journey through all of this. Absolutely love chatting to you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me on. Wow, what an education, so much to go away and mull over. And I have to say that Kate and I were just chatting offline when we finished our recording and she said, oh, I forgot to say that actually another really important reason for toning up the pelvic floor is it makes orgasm so much stronger because it makes the rhythmic contractions much more powerful. So if you needed any more motivation to do your pelvic floor squeezes, that is perhaps one more to add into the mix. Kate, thank you so much for your time again. Well, has that conversation made you see your relationships in a different light. Maybe you're questioning things that you've held as immutable truths for a long time. Well, do let me know. You can leave a comment on Instagram. I am at Lizal Me and there's at Lizal Wellbeing for the team too. Well, on October the 18th, it is World Menopause Day. So throughout October, we are going to be dedicating this show to topics you might not initially think about when it comes to menopause. We've obviously talked so much, haven't we, over the years about general things and the kind of the front of line issues facing menopausal women. But next week, we are going to be starting a deep dive into some of the lesser known topics. Well, would you rather listen to all these special menopause shows ad free, I wonder? So for a small monthly fee, you can. Now you can just subscribe to the Lizard Wellbeing Show Plus, which is on Apple Podcasts, and you get 24 hour early access to all episodes as well. So it's quite a good thing to check out if you fancy that. Well, until the next time that we chat go well bye-bye The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production with additional production support from Ellie Smith Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. 
Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.